December 2nd, we are planning to have a baptism. So if you're interested in that, please talk to Steve, myself, one of the other elders, and um, we'd be happy to, to give you some more information. Another uh, reminder that when we pass the offering towards the end of the service, there will actually be two. The first is our, our normal, normally scheduled offering, and the second is our quarterly offering for missionaries that we support. So be looking for that. And if, if for some reason you missed it today, you could still bring that next week. Just put something in on the, on the memo that you're giving towards the missions offering. So finally, uh, it would be remiss to, to not mention that today is Veterans Day. Uh, if we have any veterans here, could you guys go ahead, if you want to raise your hand or stand up, um, we'd just like to honor those that have served. You know, it's, it's great to, to remember and to say thanks, and that's um, what Veterans Day is. And, you know, when we gather here, we also have the opportunity just to remember, more importantly, what Jesus has, has done for us. And, you know, in John 15, he said, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. And, you know, that's an amazing thing, and also amazing to think that Jesus died for us uh, when we were still his enemies. And uh, how amazing is that? And, and what just a, a blessing that he calls us into a relationship with him. And so, you know, as we sing this next song, let it be a, a way to remind yourself of, of Jesus' death and his sacrifice for us. Because, you know, a, a life sacrificed is, is a powerful thing. And um, when Jesus sacrificed his life, it has a transforming power. It has the power to forgive us our sins and to bring us into God's family. And so I just invite you to think about that as we sing this next song. As Steve's on his way up, just a reminder that next week, the Haiti team, Rod was coming up to remind me, uh, the Haiti team will be sharing with us some stories and recap of their recent trip. So uh, we look forward to that. That'll be at the beginning of the service next week. So, oh, sorry. Steve is not speaking today. It is Mark. I knew that, but old habits die hard sometimes. Yeah, not Steve. Uh, that's okay, though. You guys will survive. <laughs> it's my pleasure to open the Word of God this morning to Hebrews chapter 7. So please turn with me there, if you will. As we come to this seventh chapter of Hebrews, we come to the main section of the book. It's what the author's really been wanting to get to here, and for the next several weeks here, we'll get into the meat of his book. He wanted to do so, he wanted to get to this point, to the subject of the high priesthood of Christ a little bit sooner, but as we saw in chapter 5, verse 11, he had to kind of pause, because he thought about who his audience was, who his readers were. And he said he would have liked to talk to them about Melchizedek, but it was kind of hard to explain to them because he said they had become dull of hearing. And some of them, he was even concerned that they were in danger of falling away from the faith. They were people who professed to believe, but they never really fully embraced Christ fully and committed their lives to him as their Lord and Savior. And so they were false converts potentially in danger of falling away. So he warned them. He spent the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6, addressing the spiritual state of his audience. Now, for the most part, he was convinced that the people he was speaking to were believers. 
In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, But beloved, I am convinced of better things concerning you. And earlier in the book, he calls them the holy brethren, the partakers of the heavenly calling and partakers of Christ in chapter 3. In chapter 6, he said they were people who had fled for refuge to Christ. So for the most part, the people who were hearing this message were believers, but maybe just kind of spiritually stunted or spiritually lazy. Now, context is everything. And so as we come here, just as a real quick review here about what the author's purpose was in writing Hebrews. Um, Dr. David McLeod from Emmaus, one of my professors some years ago, said it was four things that he wrote about to establish the supremacy of Christianity. Now remember, these were Jewish converts to Christianity. They were Jewish believers and they were under persecution. And they were, for so many centuries, had been under this Levitical priesthood system where there was the priests and the altar and the sacrifices. And now they've come to Christ and they've left the altar and the animal sacrifices and the priesthood behind because they now have Christ who was the one perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so they had some honest intellectual questions, I think, about the differences there and how there was no visible priesthood and how was it better and why if he was, if he was the Messiah, why did he have to suffer? And then secondly, to exhort a break from Judaism. He just wanted them to break completely free of the old system and cling completely to the new system of what they had in Christ. Thirdly, to encourage spiritual renewal. As I said, he wanted to talk about Melchizedek and some of the deeper things, but it was hard to explain because he said they had become dull of hearing. They had become dull. That means they weren't always that way. They had become lazy. They regressed. They were spiritual babies who wanted milk, as he said, and not solid food. Now, there's milk and solid food doctrines in every area of the Bible, right? So if we're thinking of salvation, a milk doctrine might be our basic belief that uh, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and his sacrifice paid for our sins. But then there might be some more solid food doctrines you would study within salvation, like, you know, the predestination and election and all that. He wanted his readers to go on to perfection. He wanted to lead them and us this morning to a mature mental grasp of the truth about Christ as the high priest. And to do that, he said they had to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. They had a fundamental knowledge of the Old Testament doctrines that were pictures and prophecies about the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ. But they were just that, a foundation, something to be built on, to move beyond to the deeper truths that would help them grow mature in their faith. But it's kind of hard to talk about some of the deep things of God when people have a low spiritual appetite for spiritual things. You know, they know the basics and they're comfortable talking about those things. But what about the last time you've maybe had a real deep spiritual conversation with some doctrine of the Bible with some other Christian? You know? And lastly, the author wanted to emphasize the danger of willful apostasy. The danger was that some of them may have been professing believers. They came to the church every week. They were exposed to the teachings of the Word of God. They saw the working of the Holy Spirit, and yet they never fully embraced it. Could there be people in today's churches just like the people in the Hebrews, the day of the Hebrews? Where for the most part, where the gospel is preached, we'd like to believe that the people in our churches are Christians. 
But could it be that maybe a number of Christians in churches today are spiritually lazy? They don't read the Word of God. They don't exercise prayer. They don't evangelize. They don't study deeply the things of God and maybe spiritually lazy. They don't have a spiritual appetite for things. And maybe even some, and that's the scary thing as a leader of a church, is that you think that could there even be some in our churches where they, they come every week and they say the right things, they look and say the part, but maybe they've never really fully embraced Christ as their Lord and Savior and come fully to Christ. And the book of Hebrews has five warning passages. They're called the five warning passages of Hebrews where five different times he warns the people to come fully to Christ, break with Judaism, and come fully to Christ. So to come to chapter 7 now, we finally get to the main subject he's been wanting to speak about, which is the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now normally the formula for spiritual growth is this, and I like this formula, it's not my original thing, but knowledge of Scripture over time times the application of Scripture equals spiritual growth, right? But the problem for these people was that they've had too much time and there's been no growth. And how sad that is. Now, he's not going to give them any more time to grow. He's going to put them right away on a high spiritual protein diet here and give them no more time to grow up. He's going to start feeding them the meat of the word. Now, some years ago at work, um, several years ago, we won a contest between another team in our office and a presentation we made. And so a high-up manager took us all out to the Cheesecake Factory and said we could order whatever we wanted. Now, some of us young guys, we're going to take advantage of this opportunity. This wasn't a day to get salad, right? This was a day to get steak, and not just any steak. In fact, my friend ordered like a $26 steak. You know, this was the time for meat. And as I say, as we come to chapter 7 here this morning, this is a time for meat. So open your mouths wide. <laughs> Let's read the first 10 verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, one of the honest questions the Jewish Christians would have had was, how was Jesus a superior priest when he doesn't come from the line of Levi? That was the priestly line, and genealogy to these Jews was everything. To answer that question, the author of Hebrews here, and we don't know who the author is, the Holy Spirit is certainly the author, but we don't know the 
apostle or as close associated with the apostle. We're just going to call him the author or the man of God. And if Jesus is a better high priest than what Judaism had to offer, how so? Because he's not from the line of Levi. And if it is true, then they should leave Judaism and come fully to Christ. So he starts out by telling the story of Melchizedek. Now, when you look for Melchizedek in the Bible, it's kind of hard to find. You only see him in a couple places. Back in Genesis chapter 14, there are three verses that mention Melchizedek. And then centuries later in the book of Psalm 110, you get a brief mention about Melchizedek and how the Messiah was going to come in the order of Melchizedek forever as a priest. But then you don't see him again until Hebrews 5 through 7 here. And then wham, we get a whole chapter about him. I think that's kind of neat, you know, the inspiration of God to arrange historical events in such a way that just a brief encounter like that in Genesis 14, in a, in a kind of an obscure prophecy maybe in Psalm 110, had such huge spiritual significance here in Hebrews. Only God can orchestrate all the events of history, all the different people and places and events throughout the Old Testament to all point to Christ. And isn't that amazing? Well, we get here, and it tells us a little bit about the story of the events in Genesis 14, where Abraham, who had to rescue his nephew Lot. Now, if you remember the story, Abraham and Lot are looking over all the promised land, and Abraham gives his nephew Lot the choice of land. He chooses the lush land down in Sodom. It wasn't a very good choice, spiritually speaking, or politically speaking, because Sodom was a group of a conglomerate of five different cities there that um, had to pay tribute to another conglomeration of cities, of four cities up north. They were paying tribute for about 12 years. And then in the 13th year, it says that they rebelled against Ketelelmer, the king of that northern confederation. And so there was a battle. And Abraham's nephew Lot got caught up in this battle. And the battle was so one-sided, it was so lopsided, and Lot and all his goods were captured and taken away. One uh, fortunate soldier escaped the scene and made it all the way back to Abraham, told him about what had happened, and Abraham jumped into action, gathered 318 of his own soldiers and a few of his allies, and went after and attacked them in the night, dividing their forces. And this is in Genesis 14, the first uh, battle that we read about in the Bible. There was probably more before then, but it's the first one we read about in detail. And Abraham just slaughtered them. He, he rescued Lot and his goods, and he's returning home. And news of this great victory spread fast. And there was this king from the city of Salem named Melchizedek who met him, Abraham, on the way home from his victory. And this is where we are introduced to it here in chapter 7. Now, Genesis 14, I just want to read these three verses here real quick. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed, blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So we learn that this king Melchizedek, who meets Abraham on the way home from victory, uh, brings out some bread and wine as a token of refreshment and honor of the triumph to Abraham and his troops. And he blesses Abraham. And thanks God that Abraham belonged to the God Most High, and he blesses God. And then Abraham, it says, gave a tenth of the spoils of victory. This would have been the very best of the spoils of that victory. He gave it to Melchizedek. And then that's all we hear about Melchizedek for the rest of the Bible until Hebrews 5 here. 
Now, I want to talk just a little bit about typology. Um, it says here that he's first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And then we get some interesting things said about this Melchizedek, that he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so we got to interpret this language here as typology. And what I mean by type is that it resembles, it has a likeness. It's similar to. So when we use the word type or type of Christ in the Bible, we mean that there's a person or a thing or an event or an institution in the Old Testament that symbolically represents or illustrates or prefigures a person or concept in the New Testament. I had a high school English teacher who could seemingly make a type of Christ out of anything in the books we were reading. I think it was the Red Badge of Courage, and about on every page there was some kind of type of Christ she would draw out of it. Uh, we At Emmaus Bible College, where I spent a couple years, Dr. Dave Reed, we even joked that he could make a frog into a type of Christ. This guy was just, he could find a type of Christ in about any scripture in the Old Testament. Or maybe it was just that our spiritual appetite wasn't there yet, but a good type of Christ would be where in John 3, Jesus says the serpent in the wilderness was like the Son of Man being lifted up, right? So there was that plague in the Old Testament where the venomous serpents were killing off the Israelites. And then Moses was told to put up a brass serpent on a pole, and all they had to do was look at that, and they would be healed. And Jesus says that was a type of how he would be lifted up on the cross to bring spiritual healing to people. And so that's a good type. Or like how there's the lamb sacrifices, a perfect unblemished lamb, and how that pictures the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so those are good types. Now, no type is perfect, right? I mean, a brass snake is certainly no comparison to Jesus Christ. A lamb is certainly no comparison to Jesus Christ. Melchizedek, the person, isn't even a great comparison to Jesus Christ. But the way he is pictured, the way the Old Testament record portrays Melchizedek, is a great type of Christ. And it starts with his name and title. The name Melchizedek translates to king of righteousness. Christ's person and ministry are characterized by righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which many believe became known as Jerusalem later on. Salem means peace. And so Melchizedek is called the king of peace, which prefigures Christ bringing peace to sinners and a holy God, and how one day he will have a kingdom of peace on the earth in the millennial kingdom. In Zechariah 6.13, it's a prophecy of how the Messiah is both a priest and a king. Notice that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Usually we're one or the other. The line of Judah was the kingly line. The line of Levi was the priestly line. But here we have this Melchizedek who is both. And so in that way, he prefigures Christ. In Zechariah 6, it says, Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. He is both a priest and a king. And then secondly, the type is the priestly office of Melchizedek. It says Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God. It's the first mention of priest in the Bible when, in Genesis 14 and Melchizedek there. And the Jews had many names for God. The most common covenant name was Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, the I am, he is their covenant, that's the covenant name. But here, 
He is called the God Most High. That is El Elyon. That means he has absolute superiority over all other gods. He is the God not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. He's the God over all, El Elyon. And so Jesus Christ is the God over all. Melchizedek pictures Christ as a superior priest, not just priest of the Jews, but priest over all. And then we see in Melchizedek some interesting language here. We see a lack of priestly ancestry. You know, he's not from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi isn't even here yet at the time of Melchizedek. And it says he's without genealogy. So the Old Testament law required the priests to come from the line of Levi, and Aaron was the first high priest. But Melchizedek here, we don't see anything about his ancestry. There's no priestly ancestry here. And so the Jews are looking for a priestly ancestry. This genealogy thing is important to them if they want to accept the argument that Jesus is superior as a priest and that they should leave Judaism behind. Well, Melchizedek, he's not from the line of Judah. He's not from a priestly tribe. And so Jesus, in that way, he's, he doesn't have a priestly ancestry. He comes from the tribe of Judah. But because he is compared to Melchizedek here, he has a priestly ancestry in Melchizedek's line. Then we see a lack of any genealogy, really. It says without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Now, did Melchizedek have parents? What, did he, was he born? Did he die? Yes, he did. And so the comparison here is more not about just the person of Melchizedek, but the way the Old Testament portrays Melchizedek. We just see Melchizedek show up in a few verses there, and we see that he's a king and a priest of the Most High God, and then he disappears. There's no record there of his parents, his birth, his death, a priestly genealogy, any of that. We just see him kind of show up there. And so in that way, we have kind of a mental image of him always as a king and a priest. And so Jesus, too, he's an eternal priest. Now, my genealogy, if you were to examine my genealogy, you wouldn't find too many awesome, amazing, uh, no notable people but I personally think they're awesome and notable, but you might not think so. Um, but as I look through my genealogy, I, I tried to find some interesting connections. And, you know, there's a few. I mean, my dad's dad was the first state environmentalist for Iowa and stuff like that. Yeah, okay, you might not care about that. But I guess my closest claim to fame might be the current Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Now, it took some digging to put this connection together because it's always been kind of a word-of-mouth thing that we're connected to Chuck Grassley. And I've had to ask and ask about this. And then I've, I've kind of taken up to ancestry and genealogy over the last five or six years. So, here it is, right? Chuck's grandpa is my, I think my third or fourth great, the brother of my third or fourth great grandma. So, you put that up here? Okay, yeah. So, see, Chuck's mom, Ruth, his dad, George Corwin, is the brother of Margaret Corwin Jefferson, and then you kind of trace it down from there, to Mabel, to John, to Mabel, to Mary, to myself. And so, you put that all together, and he is my second cousin, three times removed, so that's, that's pretty good, huh? I'll take it. <laughs> I grew One of my good friends growing up was a Harkin, and he had about the exact same connections as I do, like second cousin, three times removed, to the Senator Harkin, and we had kind of a friendly rivalry growing up. That was kind of fun. Okay, well, I'll take it. Melchizedek, though. Uh, who was he? You know, just kind of interesting. Uh, some say Melchizedek was actually the pre-incarnate Christ, they say the words without father or mother justify that. 
But notice the verse says he was made like the Son of God. Not made the Son of God. He wasn't the Son of God. He was made like. He's a picture. Some have speculated he was Noah's son, Shem. And if there's no gaps in the genealogy in the Old Testament, Shem actually may have outlived Abraham by 35 years, so it's a possibility. We don't know. Some say maybe he was an angel or the Holy Spirit or others. But I think it's best to understand Melchizedek here as simply a faithful and godly high priest of the one true God. He was a real historical king priest who serves as a type for the greater king priest, Jesus Christ. So the comparison is more about how the Old Testament portrays Melchizedek, not Melchizedek himself. So um, I think I've got a family picture here. And I see Melchizedek as just kind of like the snapshot we get in the Old Testament, right? We just see the picture of him, and in our minds, because that's all we know about him, we think of him always as this priest and this king, and there's no beginning or end to it. Now, I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like a picture. This is our, a picture we just took out in the woods not too long ago. And if all you saw of us and all you knew of my family was this beautiful picture here out in the woods this past month, you might think, and you didn't know anything else about us, you thought, you know, that's a, that's a great family. You know, that, that family is so beautiful. Look at those kids. They're, they're smiling. I bet they always get along. There's no squabbles at home in that family. But those parents, they never have a tiff, you know. They, they're just such a, they always get out and have fun, you know. And the kind of Facebook kind of does that to us, don't they? You just kind of see everybody's highlight reel, and you, that's all you get to see and think about them. Well, I won't fill you in on all the details, but um, what we know about Melchizedek is that he was a priest and a king and nothing else, and so we always view him as that. He's an eternal picture of an eternal priest and king, and so is Jesus. That's the portrait we have of Melchizedek, and it's a rich picture of Christ. So going on here to verses 4 to 10, we read about the greatness of the... Now, this is a great word here, and you can impress any pastor or theologian if you can say this without flubbing it up. The greatness of the Melchizedekian priesthood. Say that 10 times fast. The argument goes you like this. Abraham and his descendants... Aaron and Levi were great, but Melchizedek is greater. And in the ways that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and all the Levitical priesthood, so too Jesus Christ is greater than any other priesthood, any other system, any other way, so-called way to God. Let's consider how Melchizedek is great. First of all, it says here that Abraham gave gifts to Melchizedek. He gave him a tithe, a tenth of all the spoils. He gave gifts to the greater one. Verse 4 says, now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Abraham, notice, gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. This was the first fruits, the finest part, the choicest selection of all the spoils, and he gives it to Melchizedek. Now that's interesting to the Jews because Abraham, you think of who he was. He was the father of their nation, the great patriarch Abraham. And here is Abraham giving tithes to this Melchizedek. They thought, now, if any of, of all of Abraham's contemporaries, they should all be paying tithes to Abraham because of his greatness. But here's Abraham paying tithes to another. Now, before I move on here, just as a, as a side note, how about us? You know, I, I just think that's neat that Abraham would have taken the choicest part of his spoils and given that to Melchizedek. Do we give the choicest 
part of what God has given to us to the back to the Lord? Do we give, not, maybe not just a tithe. I mean, the New Testament isn't, doesn't have a hard requirement for tithing. It talks more about giving cheerfully and sacrificially and according to what we have. But do we do that? Do we give God our best? And not just with our money, but with our time and our lives. Do we give him our best? Not just when we feel like it, but all the time. Cheerfully, sacrificially, regularly, as a true act of worship. Now, in verse 5 here, it tells us where that Old Testament tithing was supposed to go. It says, Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. Now, the priestly line of Levi did not have a land allotment in the promised land. Now, there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? And when they got to the promised land, it was divided up in such a way for all the different tribes of Israel. And I may have a map up here. And there is one tribe, though, that didn't have a land allotment. That's the tribe of Levi. They were the priestly tribe. And all the other tribes were supposed to give them a tenth, the first fruits of their livestock and crops and such. And then the Levites in return would give a tenth of their intake to the priests. But Melchizedek is not from that line. And Abraham pays the tithe to Melchizedek. Now stay with me here. In verse 6 it says, He whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So there's blessings from the better here, from the greater he says that Melchizedek, he's not in the line of Levi. He doesn't have that priestly genealogy, but he received tithes from Abraham. And he says, beyond all contradiction, without question, the lesser is blessed by the better. And like I said, the Jews would have been thinking, okay, then um, Abraham should be doling out the blessings here. Not Melchizedek, right? But Melchizedek was greater. And even Abraham recognized that. And Melchizedek is the one who blessed Abraham, the great patriarch of the Jews. That would have maybe been shocking to realize for these Jews that there was someone even greater than their Abraham at his time. Now, if the lesser is blessed by the better, you think Abraham would be blessing, but it's Melchizedek. And, and instead, what we have here is Abraham, Melchizedek, you would think, would be paying tithes to Abraham, but Abraham is paying tithes to Melchizedek. So this is to kind of settle that dispute with the Jews here um, and to help them understand that even though Jesus Christ did not come from the line of Levi, he is greater than that. His priesthood is greater than that priesthood, and so they should leave behind Judaism out of here. No more altar, animal sacrifices, priesthood, because we have Jesus Christ who is better. He's not from the line of Levi, but he's better because he's in the order of Melchizedek who is an eternal king priest. In verse 8, it says, speaks of how he is eternal, and it says, Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So the Levitical priests who received tithes, it's saying we're just mortal men. You know, that was kind of the problem of the old priesthood, and we'll get into that in the weeks to come. But they had a term limit, age 50, you had to be done, and or you might even die. And they were prevented from continuing. But here it says, that, we, that he receives them, Melchizedek received the tithes of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So Melchizedek also received tithes just like the Levitical priests received tithes, 
but he lives on. He's an eternal priest, at least in the picture we're given of him in the Old Testament. So he's greater. And then lastly, Melchizedek has a greater genealogy than Levi. So even Levi, it says, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father Melchizedek when he met him. So this is kind of a strange argument, it might seem, but the idea is, you know, you remember on my genealogy tree there, and I was kind of like way down the line, right, from the connection to Chuck Grassley. But so that's kind of what it's saying here. Levi is like the great grandson of Abraham, and then down through him was Moses and Aaron and the priestly line. But when Abraham, way up the line here, paid tithes till Melchizedek, it was kind of like in a sense that Levi and Moses and Aaron and all of them were paying tithes up through Abraham to Melchizedek as well. And so Jesus Christ being in the order of Melchizedek is greater than all that system of priesthood that the Jews had. I hope that makes sense. Like I said, it's kind of the meat of the word here as we're getting into these chapters that are a little more difficult. You have to pay a little closer attention and open your mouth a little wider to receive some of the meat of the word. So what? Most of us aren't Jewish believers, are we? There might be some. But to us, what does it matter about Abraham and Levi and Aaron and Melchizedek? You know, I mean, for me, the issue is settled at Christ. You know, I don't, I don't care so much about the Old Testament altar and the sacrifices. Great pictures of Christ, but I'm, I don't need any more convincing, you know, to believe that Jesus is all I need. I don't need that Old Testament sacrificial system. So what does all this argument mean to me? Why do I need to hear this today? Well, two things I thought of. One, first of all, we still need a priest. We need a high priest for eternal salvation. John Piper uh, says it really well here. And specifically, we need the superior priesthood of Christ. The reason there are priests in the Old Testament is that priests are needed to intercede for us with God. They enter the holy place where we are not allowed to go. And they take sacrifices for us so that our sins will be forgiven. All of that Old Testament priestly system was meant to teach us about our sin and the holiness and wrath of God and the inescapable judgment that is coming on us. And the point of all of it was this, he says, God has made a way to get right with God. He provided priests in the Old Testament. And then he provided his son, the final high priest. There is only one hope for sinners like us. We must have a faithful high priest who will intercede for us forever. We need a king of righteousness, verse 2. We need a king of peace, as it says in verse 2. We need someone without beginning or ending. We need a priest who can be a priest for us forever and secure our salvation. We need someone greater than Abraham and greater than Levi, something like Melchizedek who blessed Abraham, who received tithes from Abraham, and in a sense from Levi and Abraham. And all the Old Testament priesthood could do was point toward the one superior priest after the order of Melchizedek, whose sacrifice of himself and whose eternal intercession would guarantee eternal salvation for all God's people. I think John Piper said it really well there. Secondly, now we don't want to just think of uh, our salvation as a one-time thing we did long ago and Jesus Christ's sacrifice is a one-time thing we did long ago and great, he's made peace with God for us but he is a priest we need continually throughout our lives on this journey to heaven 
Not at just the moment of salvation to make peace between sinner and a holy God, but we need Jesus as a priest continually now to help us with our ongoing sanctification. It's encouraging, I think, to know that we have a high priest who is endless, whose ministry is eternal, as Melchizedek pictures, who can help us persevere in the faith, who can help us face the pressures of life, who can really help us. There's nothing else like it. Today we're being saved not just only from the penalty of our sins, we were saved from the penalty of our sins when peace was made with God for us, when we turned to Christ for salvation. But then there is this ongoing process of sanctification where we're being made more and more like Christ. And yet we're living in a sinful world We're in our own bodies and our minds where we still struggle with sin until we get to heaven and we need a priest to help us. We need a priest to intercede for us. Next week we'll hear about how he intercedes for us. Jesus is praying for us. As chapter 4 said, he's our great high priest who we can boldly go to to obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And we need that kind of priest, do we not? Not just for salvation, But throughout our lives and sanctification, we need a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. There's nothing better than what we have in Christ. There's no system. There's no religion. There's no church background, no lifestyle, nothing that the world has to offer us that is better than what we have in Christ. Amen? Any other pleasure, any other pursuit in life is a lesser pleasure, is a lesser pursuit than what we find in Jesus Christ. We need Christ. We need his high priestly ministry daily. And so this encouragement about Melchizedek and how his priesthood is better, yeah, it's kind of a little academic and technical, but I think it's powerful. I think it even brings a greater assurance, a greater confidence in my mind that what we have in Christ as our great high priest is better. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time this morning uh, where we had to open our mouths a little bit to receive some of this truth about the priestly system and Melchizedek and all that. And we just thank you, Lord, for helping us to understand, by the help of your Holy Spirit, how Melchizedek beautifully pictures Christ. Christ, who is eternal, his priesthood eternal, his kingship eternal. And Lord, thank you for making that personal for us, that by his great sacrifice, he made atonement for our sins. And it put an end to all that sacrificial system, the altar, the priesthood. It fulfilled it all. All that was just to picture his work. And so now as we take the bread and the cup, we say thank you, Lord, for making that sacrifice for my sins. Thank you for being my priest that I need to be at peace with the holy God and help in this life. And now, Lord, we take the bread and the cup, reminding us of the body and blood of our Lord who whose body was broken, whose blood was shed on the cross, that we might be made right with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, another cool thing about the story of Melchizedek is uh, when he met Abraham, he brought out bread and wine. And here we are um, together today, remembering our great high priest, Jesus. He called us to remember him uh, with the bread and the cup. And so as we take that, let's just remember him. And as Mark said, um, come boldly before the throne of grace. And we're going to 
We're going to sing this next song, Oh, Come to the Altar, and it's not talking about some Old Testament altar. Uh, it's talking about the altar of Christ. And Christ's altar was the cross. And when we look at the cross, we see God's invitation to us to come freely into his presence where he invites us. Uh, so let's, as we sing this song and as we contemplate, please come up and take the, the bread and the cup when you are ready. Uh, we invite all who are believers in Christ to join us in this. Bear your cross.